Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the oral arguments today in the Supreme Court on the Mississippi abortion case that seem to indicate the right-wing majority of justices are willing to uphold the state of Mississippi's abortion restrictions. Joining us is Sherry Kolb, Professor of Law at Cornell University, who teaches courses in Constitutional Criminal Procedure, Evidence and Animal Rights, and has published articles in a variety of law reviews on reproductive rights. And her most recent book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights, which addresses both the pro-life and the animal rights movements. She clerked for Justice Harry A. Blackman of the United States Supreme Court, and we will discuss her prediction in the Washington Post that the outcome is not a nail-biter since the Supreme Court will uphold the Mississippi 15-week ban and say it is not overruling Casey because it does not need to reach the question since a 15-week ban does not impose an undue burden. The decision, she feels, will be at best manipulative and at worst dishonest. Then we'll speak with Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is the principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and is also the director of the United States Election Project. We will discuss how the University of Florida had to reverse its decision to bar him from serving as an expert witness in a lawsuit against the state targeting legislation supported by Governor Ron DeSantis that inhibits access to the ballot. We'll look into how this fits into the aggressive national campaign by Republicans to restrict Democratic votes as American democracy heads towards a one-party autocracy. Then finally, we'll speak with Joshua Douglas, a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He is the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and he joins us to discuss his article at CNN, The Attacks on the 2024 Election Are Already Underway. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Sherry Kolb, who is the C.S. Wong Professor of Law at Cornell University, who teaches courses in constitutional criminal procedure, evidence and animal rights, and has published articles in a variety of law reviews on reproductive rights. And her most recent book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights, which addresses both the pro-life and the animal rights movements. And she clerked for Justice Harry Blackman of the United States Supreme Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sherry Kolb. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And today in the Supreme Court, oral arguments were heard in the Mississippi abortion case. Most of the analysis I'm reading from the court watchers seems to indicate 
that the Supreme Court appears to be open to upholding the Mississippi abortion restriction, but it could actually go further because Justice Samuel Alito said today the only real option we have are to reaffirm Roe or to overrule it. So um, where do you think we're heading here? I think the court, because the party, because basically the state of Mississippi is asking the court to overrule Roe and Casey, that even people on the court who would prefer to just do a kind of piece-by-piece dismantling of the case might feel like they really do need to address the issue. But whether they do it explicitly or not, I think certainly Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas will say that they should be overruling Roe and Casey, that that is pretty much a foregone conclusion. They want to do it explicitly. Um, Then it's possible that I think uh, the Chief Justice and uh, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh may want to hem and haw a little bit and just say that they don't need to reach the question and the law, the, the Mississippi law is fine and they can leave for another day whether to actually completely get rid of the right to abortion. But that whether they say that or whether they join the, the other three, I think either way, Roe and Casey are are no longer going to be the law. But the Supreme Court, when it said it was reviewing the Mississippi decision, it said it was limiting its inquiry to whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And you're quoted in the Washington Post, uh, Sherry Kolb, saying that the outcome is not a nail-biter. The Supreme Court will uphold the Mississippi 15-week ban. It will say that it is not overruling Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 decision, because it it does not need to reach the question since a 15-week ban does not impose an undue burden. That statement will be at best manipulative and at worst dishonest. So I I think you've nailed it, frankly. Yes, so I think that that's what's going so that might happen i think after listening to the argument i am i I feel like it's more likely than i realize that they will actually expressly say we overrule roe because even the chief justice was talking as though you know I, i thought maybe the chief justice would resist this because of the court's institutional standing but even he was talking about how well viability wasn't necessary to row. And so, you know, if he's even looking for a way to uphold the statute, I think the others who have been kind of on the drumbeat for a while will want to do it. And I think some of them think that row is this almost like a religious abomination. I think that it was really a powerful moment when Justice Sotomayor said, this is religious. You believe that a fetus is a rights-bearing individual, but that is not everyone's belief. That's your religious belief, that that is very much true. And I think that right now on the court, we have six people 
who believe that that is a full person, that even a, you know, a zygote is a full person with rights. And therefore that, you know, Roe is just as wrong as Plessy and Dred Scott. I don't know that they would put it that way, but I do think that they believe that. But can anybody make the case that might resonate with these religious conservatives that it doesn't make sense to give rights to a fetus over the rights of the mother who's bearing it. I mean, isn't that the fundamental issue? Well, I think people have made the argument. I thought that the that the the representative of the clinic, the lawyer, was fantastic. But I think the reaction to her arguments suggests that you know when somebody is religious religiously devoted to the idea that, you know, this is a sacred thing, then, you know, I I don't know that any argument will reach that person. I think there was a time that was different. Like there was a time prior to Roe when it was nuns who were helping girls get to safe abortions because they knew that the alternative was that these girls would die. But I don't, I feel like we're at a very different place right now where it's like the the sides don't see each other and the side that doesn't see the woman's right doesn't see the woman really. They see, in a sense, they don't even understand that it's a forced pregnancy. They they imagine the fetus as though it's living on its own and somebody's coming in with a knife, as opposed to that it is living as a kind of parasitic organism on somebody else's body and extracting nutrients and calcium and everything it needs from her body and that she doesn't get a say in that. And I don't, I wish that that was something that, that a good attorney could get across to them, but it is plain to me now that they are just simply not ready to hear it. And again, I'm speaking with Sherry Kolb, who is the C.S. Wong Professor of Law at Cornell University, who teaches courses in constitutional criminal procedure, evidence, and animal rights, and has published articles in a variety of law reviews on reproductive rights, and her most recent book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights, which addresses both the pro-life and the animal rights movements, and she clerked for Justice Harry Blackman of the United States Supreme Court, who, by the way, came up today in oral arguments, Harry Blackman, because he was the, he wrote the Roe decision, and uh, it was the Chief Justice who said that basically questioned whether the viability line is crucial because Harry Blackman, the author of the majority of opinion in Roe, had called the line arbitrary in his private papers. So what did you make of that? Well, that was interesting. Um, I... I think probably by the time that Casey came down, that Justice Blackman was no longer of the view that the line was arbitrary. I think the line has its problems, certainly. I mean, I, I've i said as much in my writing, but I don't, it sort of doesn't matter what line you select. I would, I would be happier with the sentience line, you know, when it begins to feel pain, which only marginal scientists have said is anywhere before, you know, 25, 26, 27, some say 30 weeks. 
So the timing is actually not that different from viability in terms of the, the timing, but it makes more sense because you're talking about a capacity that's relevant in a way. But it seems to me that a lot of the conversation around viability and whether it's a sensible line or an arbitrary line is really kind of beside the point because what they're going to do and what this conversation is about is essentially allowing the government to say when and whether women get to, to end a pregnancy. And even though everyone's talking about it being up to the states, Congress could pass a law prohibiting abortion and then it would not be up to the states. So in a way, a lot of this, oh, let's leave it up to the states because that way, all the people can decide. And putting aside the fact that an individual right should not be up to the state, they don't ask that religious rights or what they define as religious rights and that what many people regard as overreach, like a religious right to go to church without a mask and expose people to COVID, for example, they don't say that that should be up to the majority. But even putting that to one side, the idea that it would vary from state to state assumes that Congress would not pass a law. But if Congress passed a law and the president signed it, then abortion would not be state to state. It would be prohibited in all 50 states. Well, if they do uphold the Mississippi law, the 15-week ban, then aren't there about 20 states that would automatically go along with that as well. I mean, there, I think there's a, yeah. at least yeah. a dozen states who have trigger laws that would automatically yeah. restrict abortion. That's right. So there are a number of states that have trigger laws that would, at the moment that the court overrules Roe and Casey, those laws go into effect. And then, you know, so even if you're looking to the states, there are a lot of states that are going to prohibit it. And a lot of women cannot afford to go traveling around the country to find a state that will allow her to have an abortion. But even if we assume that, well, at least New York is going to allow it, once again, Congress can pass a law that prohibits abortion and a president can sign that law. Obviously, President Biden would not, but other presidents may in the future. And then we have no right to abortion whatsoever. So I, I feel like there's some level of comfort in states that are progressive that is not necessarily warranted, given that saying that Roe is gone means that Congress could also prohibit abortion, and that would be across the country. So far, Congress passed a law prohibiting so-called partial birth abortion, and the Supreme Court upheld that law. So Congress is very capable of passing an anti-abortion law, has done it in the past, and those laws have survived and can do it again. Well, I'm not sure that they want to do it because McConnell and uh, McCarthy are much happier to have the Supreme Court do it for them because the polls are so clear that a vast majority of women and people in this country, so like three-quarters are in favor of abortion rights. And it could actually end up, since the decision's going to come down in, in next summer, in the height of, a, of an election year, yeah, it may actually backfire on the Republicans. I mean, if this law, if the Congress passed a law along the lines of what you're talking about, let alone the Supreme Court doing it, 
the results in recently in Virginia would have been quite different, where suburban women went along with the Republican because there's a lot of anxiety about COVID in schools. But won't that totally blow up now if they were to ban abortion in, and rule on it the Supreme Court sometime in the summer? Well, I, I mean, I think that it depends on... It depends in part, like if the court were to say we overrule Roe and Casey expressly, it could have, there could be a political backlash to that. And I think you're right that most people are pro-choice, but I think what happens is that even if somebody's pro-choice, that isn't, they aren't as intensely pro-choice as people who are pro-life are intensely pro-life. So the intensity of preference makes a difference in terms of voting because if somebody you know if if abortion if you're pro-choice but it's not your issue then if there's some other thing that you like about the candidate you might go for the candidate on the other side on abortion just because you don't really care that much about it and i think that's the problem the people who are pro-life are single issue in a way that a lot of the people who are pro-choice are not single issue so you can have a minority of the country determining something. As far as the Congress wanting to leave it to the Supreme Court, this, all the Supreme Court is prepared to do right now is to say that it's fine to prohibit abortion. So if, the, if there's a move to try to prohibit abortion nationally, then it has to happen in terms of a law because the Supreme Court's not going to say abortion is prohibited. It's just going to say that government may prohibit abortion. And that's where, you know, Congress at, at the point when there's a Republican Congress and a Republican president can pass a law prohibiting all abortion. And I do think there would be backlash, but, you know, we we're in a place right now where the where President Trump appointed a lot of judges in addition to the three justices he appointed. And that is going to make a huge difference when laws come up for review. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, Sherry Kolb, what bothers me is that one man, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, who I understand is a member of Opus Dei, which is an extremely conservative Catholic organization that's very, very adamantly anti-abortion. He's picked most of these Supreme Court justices and also these other judges that you just mentioned. So that bothers me that the one man has had this undue influence. And the second thing that bothers me is that these confirmation hearings that we've had for the nominees for the Supreme Court are clearly in retrospect, completely bogus, because everybody said stare decisis when, you know, it's settled law row, it's been around for for five decades, we're not going to touch right. it, we're not going to touch it. I mean, give me a break. Right, right. There's a lot of dishonesty around this issue and around the hearings where everybody is acting as though, you know, they never heard of Roe, and then suddenly they have this fully developed opinion. But, you know, in a sense, it didn't matter. It was theater because they had the votes. So, and I feel as though some of the exchanges today in oral argument felt a little bit like theater as well, because it was, it was sort of obvious from the beginning how it was gonna come out. And it was also obvious that the reason for the change in the law 
is the change in the personnel on the U.S. Supreme Court. So even though they're talking about, you know, should we or should we overrule a case and how much weight does this particular case have and what are the merits, we know how this case is coming out. So the exchanges, in a sense, are all just window dressing. And they are pretending that they're grappling with these issues and they're not sure how they're going to decide it. And it's a foregone conclusion. You know, it has a kind of kangaroo court feel to it. Well, Sherry Kolb, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Sherry Kolb, who's a C.S. Wong, professor of law at Cornell University, who teaches courses in constitutional criminal procedure, evidence and animal rights, and has published articles in a variety of law reviews on reproductive rights. And her most recent book is Beating Hearts, Abortion and Animal Rights, which addresses both the pro-life and the animal rights movements. And she clerked for Justice Harry Blackman of the United States Supreme Court. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how the University of Florida had to reverse its decision to bar our guest from serving as an expert witness in a lawsuit against the state targeting legislation supported by Governor Ron DeSantis that inhibits access to the ballot. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is director of the United States Election Project. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Michael McDonald. Great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And you yourself, uh, Michael, are making news. Uh, The University of Florida reversed its decision to bar you and two other colleagues of the university from serving as expert witness in a voting rights case against the state of Florida uh, in a lawsuit that's targeted legislation supported by Governor Ron DeSantis that inhibited access to the ballot. So... Where does that stand now? Are you, are you testifying in that case? Uh, yes, I am continuing my work in that case. And I really can't talk much more about the situation because uh, we are continuing to um, press a lawsuit against the University of Florida because we are concerned that uh, a task force and recommendations that it made to the president and be accepted Um, are insufficient to uh, continue to protect the freedom of speech at the University of Florida. So it is a core First Amendment issue, right? Yes, it's about academic freedom and our ability to speak as experts in our field in areas that are outside um, our work, so it's as private citizens, not as uh, faculty members of the University of Florida. So... I know you're working on investigating or analyzing the new redistricting maps underway in Florida. Where does that stand? Well, the um, 
Senate about two weeks ago uh, released new redistricting plans for the state Senate and for Congress. Uh, just earlier this week on Monday, the House released maps for the state House and um, new maps for Congress as well. One of those maps looks similar to the Senate maps uh, for Congress, those options. And one um, uh, is a more aggressive uh, map for um, that really takes aim at Stephanie Murphy. Uh, her, she's a Democrat in Central Florida, and it really takes aim at her district uh, to try to make it a much more Republican district to in an attempt to defeat her. I don't know where this goes from here. In the last decade, uh, the Senate and the House could not come to an agreement on a remedial plan for Congress when the state Supreme Court overturned the congressional map as being in violation of the state constitution's fair districts amendments. Um, and so we may be yet again at a, a loggerhead between the House and the Senate. Um, and even if they come to an agreement, uh, it's still not clear whether or not uh, what sort of map would make come out of this process, because you know there, there may be still both federal and state constitutional defects in the map. And Florida is one of the few states out there that actually has a prohibition on partisan gerrymandering. We also have a uh, Republican majority state Supreme Court that has changed within the last uh, um, decade. And so since the prior ruling that overturned the districts as being in violation of the fair districts amendments, we have a new composition of the Supreme Court. And it may be that that court is more lenient, gives more deference to the legislature, but we don't really know at this point. And we really don't know um, if there may be any federal uh, voting rights concerns that might come out of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act or um, even a, maybe a 14th or 15th Amendment violation. So uh, we have yet to see that as well. Uh, the legislature has not provided any justification yet for the minority populations that they've placed within uh, any of their districts. And that is a requirement uh, to be in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. So they need to really step up and show their work and, um, and all their, they can't just say this, these districts are good. They have to explain if they're drawing districts for um, voting rights purposes, uh, how they reach the decision about how they went going about drawing those districts. But clearly Florida is a very important key swing state. <laughs> and we certainly learned that in 2000 with uh, Bush v. Gore. So that's, this is very significant, isn't it, in terms of the overall electorate in the country? Well, it's interesting. <clears throat> the um, Republicans in Florida, at least for the congressional uh, districts, have not been as aggressive as they could be. And there are fair districts amendments in the state constitution. It appears as though um, the legislature uh, at least sees some guardrails. Now, are they grinding their car up against those guardrails. They certainly are. They're not driving down the middle of the, the road trying to, to you know, strictly adhere to the fair districts amendments. Um, but the question will really be, has the Republican legislature drifted too far off the side of the road, running into those guardrails, both for the state constitution requirements for fair districts, and then also um, whether or not there may be some uh, voting rights concerns uh, within the federal um, framework. 
And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald, who is a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's the principal investigator in the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is the director of the United States Election Project. To my mind, though, Michael, the key event took place here on January the 7th, just after the insurrection on January the 6th, when after the vice president certified Biden's victory, the House, and by the way, in the House, the minority leader McCarthy made a pretty passionate speech denouncing President Trump. But then he went on to talk about voting irregularities and turned the entire conversation around. And the other two uh, Republican leaders, Scalise and Stefanik, also joined in. And then the, the House, 147 House Republicans, voted to overturn the election results. This is just literally hours after the uh, Capitol was stormed. And then in the Senate, Senators Hawley, Cruz, Turberville, Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, Roger Marshall, John Kennedy, Cynthia Loomis, and Rick Scott also all voted to overturn the election results in um, Pennsylvania and Arizona. So what happened there? We know that Bill Barr had a huge blow-up with President Trump, and President Trump said, you must hate me, because Barr said there was no irregularities, the election was clean, and there's nothing that we could find or the DOJ that would change the results. So what happened there? Why did they opt to essentially begin what has now become the Stop the Steal movement? Well, first, you know, t two things to take on here. One is the the fact that there was no um, evidence of widespread irregularities that would have reversed the election outcome in any state. And uh, that's not just me saying that. That's uh, Republican uh, officials who ran the elections in those states, um, like Secretary of State in Georgia, and, and um, for example, um, who came to. <laughs> almost blows, you know, at least verbal blows with uh, President Trump over his attempt to subvert the elections in Georgia. And, um, and so it's, it, many Republicans have looked at this, and some of them were even Trump supporters uh, in the campaign. These were not never-Trumpers. These were people who um, in some, had actual some role in the Trump campaign. They say that the election uh, was fair. Um, Trump had his day in court. There were 65 court cases, and he lost 64 of them. Um, the one case that he won was a, a district court decision out of uh, Pennsylvania that only affected 1,000 ballots. Uh, it wouldn't have actually reversed the outcome of, of the election uh, in Pennsylvania. So um, it's just that the Democrats didn't really appeal that decision up higher. Uh, because it just it was sort of meaningless uh, um, once the uh, results were determined in Pennsylvania. So um, the courts looked at this, and it, these were not Democratic judges looking at this issue. This was Republican appointees. In some cases, they were judges that Trump himself had appointed to those positions. So these were handpicked judges by Trump, and they were refuting his legal team's claim of fraud. So. Again, yet another layer where we look at um, where we have Republicans themselves checking what's happening here. 
And then we've now had um, this, this ongoing post-election audits most recently concluded in, um, uh, in uh, Arizona. And yet again, we find uh, that despite having a, a large financial incentive to find fraud and, uh, and, and take their case elsewhere to other states, uh, the cyber ninjas in Arizona concluded that Biden won Arizona. So um, the, the only people who are claiming that at this point that uh, Trump won, they're doing it for political purposes. They're, it's, it's, it's rhetoric. It's not the reality of the situation. But there could be a, a, you know, more nefarious reasons uh, afoot here uh, that could subvert democracy. Um, already, uh, we're seeing that uh, Republican state governments across the country, despite saying that uh, there nothing wrong with their elections, are passing laws that appear to be targeting the way in which the Democrats were voting in the last election and trying to make it more difficult, per se, to obtain mail ballots, um, which Democrats embraced by large numbers uh, in the 2020 election, uh, unprecedented levels. So um, uh, the justification for those laws can be not the actual occurrence of vote fraud, but just the perception that there's vote fraud. The Supreme Court in a Indiana um, uh, photo ID case, uh, Crawford, um, said that, well, the, just the perception of fraud is enough as a rationale for states to adopt restrictive voting laws. Uh, and so uh, that's uh, one reason why we're seeing this rhetoric coming from Republicans is that it gives a basis for the passage of these laws. Now, what could be even worse um, could be uh, one of the objections that the Republicans had in uh, the two states, which, again, would not have changed the election outcome involved Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, there was a state Supreme Court decision that was interpreting the state constitution uh, in a way that was overruling um, uh, the statutes in Pennsylvania. And the Republicans' argument is that, no, the legislature given by the U.S. Constitution, the state legislature has primary authority for how elections are going to be conducted uh, for president and federal offices in the state of Pennsylvania. And so that's their legal argument in Pennsylvania and uh, why there were Republicans joining that objection to the, the votes. Again, the, the case involved only 10,000 votes would not have changed the outcome. So they, it was a, an objection on principle, not on the merits and the facts of whether or not the, um, Biden was the actual winner in Pennsylvania. And now we see um, Republicans are uh, running candidates across the country um, that may um, support overruling of um, uh, the election outcome in the 2024 election and have state legislatures decide that, well, um, the election was fraudulent, so we're going to directly select the electors out of our states rather than have the people and the will of the people be expressed. Um, and and so that's, I, I think, we're could get really dark in terms of democracy in that um, we will overrule d democratic elections. These, some of these are state legislatures that are also heavily gerrymandered, which we were just talking about. Um, so, um, you know, this is, uh, we're definitely drifting towards autocracy in the United States and that's not a good direction 
um, for the world's oldest democracy to be going in. Well, this is something that I keep trying to cover. That's why we're talking, Michael, and I don't know whether I'm sort of boring my audience by trying to point out that this is the biggest issue there is. And I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand why the Democrats are not making this the centerpiece of their political arguments because it's ex- existential for them. And either, well, actually, you could make you could make the case that following what happened on January the 7th, with so many Republicans voting against the election results or trying to overturn them, the tactic has metastasized into the fact that a recent poll has something like 70% of Republicans not believing that Biden is a legitimate president. And that, of course, is a political tactic to delegitimize him and make his ability to govern even less viable. Uh, And then on the other hand, it seems to be the opening wedge for what has now developed into a multi-level strategy to deny the votes, both through gerrymandering, through voter suppression, through the ability of Republican state legislatures to count and certify the vote and change it if they want, along with this assault on the voting processes itself at the precinct level, where normally neutral poll workers are being harassed and giving up their jobs. And partisans, uh, particularly like the cyber ninjas, are now being installed. So do you see the writing on the wall? I certainly do. And for the life of me, I don't understand. I don't know that the Democratic Party is is sufficiently engaged in recognizing it. Now, Stacey Abrahams is saying now that she thinks that there's a good chance that they will be able to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and also possibly the Freedom to Vote Act. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think there is a carve out for um, voting legislation and uh, for the filibuster. But you know, the block here has been Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Semina, uh, and without their support to uh, at least carve out an exception for the filibuster on voting legislation, uh, then. Uh, Democrats can't move forward any legislation within Congress. And so that's just the the, the bare bones facts of the matter. Um, and so um, uh, I, I think there's a legitimate argument that um, the filibuster, the legislative process is found in Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution. That's where if you're going to have a filibuster, that's where uh, it, you would apply it to. But um Congress has a separate right in Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution um, to pass laws regulating federal elections. And so it's really through that um, Article 1, Section 4 power that Congress has um, that doesn't require a filibuster, but you could still retain the filibuster for other policymaking if you wish to do so. Right, but does Senators Manchin and Sinema, do they recognize that as you mentioned earlier, we could be heading for autocracy. I mean, do they want the Democratic Party to lose, not just lose in 2022, but lose in 2024 as well, and possibly never come back? That's certainly the threat that's going on, with uh, you know, especially with redistricting at the moment, um, as we see these plans be put into place that are uh, severe gerrymanders. Um, there are some places where I still um, think that there's hope, like in North Carolina, where the Republicans 
implemented a very um, strong partisan Republican gerrymander that um, the state Supreme Court, which is a majority Democratic uh, Supreme Court, will um, uh, reverse that uh, um, and overturn that uh, map on uh, constitutional grounds for the state constitution in North Carolina. So we haven't quite gotten to the end of the road yet, um, but when we can look at other states uh, like Texas and Ohio and, and others, where and you know more recently Wisconsin, where that there may be very heavily favored Republican gerrymanders being put into place, that is subverting democracy in some very fundamental ways. And the longer that this clock is ticking, where we don't get action on an update to the Voting Rights Act or um, a broader affirmation of um, no partisan gerrymandering, um, then more states are going to be passing these plans, and it's going to be uh, even harder to make legal arguments to undo them. and I don't know what's in the hearts of um, Mansion and Cinema. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they're thinking, but they could go down in history as the senators that undid America's democracy. Well, Dr. Michael McDonald, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to be with you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald, who's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is the director of the United States Election Project. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into how the attacks on the 2024 election are already underway. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Joshua Douglas, who is a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and he has an article at CNN, The Attacks on the 2024 Election Are Already Underway. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Douglas. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And your article at CNN, the attack on the 2024 elections are already underway. You say that if Donald Trump steals the election in 2024, as he tried to do in 2020, it will likely be because he and his supporters are laying the groundwork right now. They are infecting key government institutions that can be exploited to thwart the will of the voters. And the Supreme Court is the first major concern. So let's start with that. Why do you feel the Supreme Court is the biggest problem given the massive and comprehensive multi-layered voter suppression, gerrymandering, intimidation of poll workers, and changing and having uh, Republican legislatures count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they'll change it. 
Yeah, so I'm not sure that I meant to say the Supreme Court is the biggest uh, problem. It's the first major one because uh, it infects all of the other issues, as you just mentioned, with respect to gerrymandering, with respect to protection of the right to vote. And unfortunately, what we saw from the court uh, in a lot of litigation in the lead up to the 2020 election is that it's not going to protect voters, that states are given really wide leeway to run their elections as they see fit. And so that opens the door to a lot of the other shenanigans that you mentioned. Uh, In addition, in 2019, the court basically wiped its hands clean of considering partisan gerrymandering claims. And so, again, states are given so much leeway to essentially rig the process to keep the current party in power. And and so these things are all reinforcing each other. Um, And I mentioned the Supreme Court first in that piece because we might think that the court would be the protector of individual rights, right? People think of the right to vote as a fundamental right, but unfortunately, the court over the past several years has not treated the right to vote in that way and has not protected voters. Instead, it's protected states. And by the way, there is no constitutional right to vote, is there? Well, it's not explicitly in the U.S. Constitution, but, uh, you know, in the 1960s, the court protected the right to vote through the Federal Equal Protection Clause. And, you know, those, that's still good case law. So the court has chipped away at that in the, in the treatment of voting rights and the way in which it's deferred to states. But, uh, you know, I don't think that the argument is that because the U.S. Constitution doesn't explicitly confer the right to vote, it doesn't exist. Um, it's that it's not being protected robustly enough as it should be under that theory of the right to vote is the most foundational, fundamental right right of our democracy. So the bottom line is that the court basically is not that interested or doesn't prioritize the plight of voters, people lining up for hours and hours, and we've seen it happen, and it's going to be obviously worse in 2022 and 2024. They are resting on states' rights, and of course that goes back to the fact that the 13 colonies, uh, that was the first thing they insisted on before joining the Union was that they would be able to conduct their own elections. Yeah, it's more than just resting on states' rights, though, because we see a real mismatch. Um, You know, a voter brings a lawsuit saying this law is going to harm me or is harming me, and the court says, well, you didn't bring enough evidence. Uh, You need to show a lot of evidence of the harms of a voting law. But then when uh, the court says, okay, under our jurisprudence, states have to justify their laws. States don't have to bring any evidence whatsoever. So states now can say, well, we're concerned about voter fraud, or we're concerned about the integrity of our election system. And the court credits that without any evidence whatsoever. So there's a real mismatch in terms of what a voter has to allege and prove to seek any redress and get protection of the right to vote versus the state can just say, well, we want to run our election, you know, in in a way that's fraud free, which of course everyone does. And no evidence about, you know, actual fraudulent problems occurring uh, or even, you know, likely to occur are needed to justify the state's law. And that's really the message, you know, the court once again gutted a portion of the Voting Rights Act this past July in the Brnovich case out of Arizona. And that was one of the big messages. This theory of voter fraud can justify all sorts of state regulations. 
And Alito did mention voter fraud, and it's obviously a centerpiece now with Trump's Stop the Steal campaign, and it's entirely based on lies with no factual basis, but it's metastasizing into our politics, and a recent poll indicates that something like 68% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president, which, of course, yeah. does not help his ability to govern. And, and it, it makes it such that an election is never over because the losers will never accept defeat. And the Supreme Court is one aspect of that because they're allowing this theory of voter fraud, which doesn't exist, but this concern of it uh, to allow states to justify ever more restrictive voting laws. So it's a cycle, and all of these things reinforce each other. And again, I'm speaking with Joshua Douglas, a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. And he has an article at CNN, The Attacks on the 2024 Election Are Already Underway. But we already have evidence going back to the Voting Rights Act of 65 that was gutted by the Chief Justice, John Roberts, and he more or less argued, oh, well, we've moved on, right? Well, we haven't moved on, have we? It's just obvious that the, the minute that preclearance went out the window, all these uh, southern states and other states that were listed before having to preclear any changes to their voting laws, they, they had a whole bunch of laws ready to go, right, to hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean, the day that that Shelby County case came down in 2013, states like Texas immediately announced they were moving forward with, you know, a voter ID law, which a court had found was going to have a disproportionate impact on minority voters, on uh, a gerrymandered map, which the courts had already said was going to harm the representation of minority voters. So, uh, and we also see the effects of that Shelby County case really at the local level, where you have local election officials making changes that make it harder for some people to vote that previously would have been stopped by that preclearance regime of the Voting Rights Act. So you mentioned in your article, Joshua Douglas, that in 2019, the federal courthouse doors were closed to claims of unlawful partisan gerrymandering by the Supreme Court. I recall that that was pretty much a unanimous decision. I mean, we're talking about partisanship, or at least the appearance of partisanship on the part of the Chief Justice and the Republican majority. But why did so many of the so-called moderates go along with that decision? Well, so that, we may be talking about a different case. The case I'm referring to in 2019 is the Rucho versus Common Cause case out of North, partially it was two cases that were consolidated, one out of North Carolina and the other out of Maryland. And Justice Kagan wrote a very vigorous dissent and basically said that, of course, the courthouse door should be open to claims of partisan gerrymandering. And here are all the problems of partisan gerrymandering. And she also made a really good point that, you know, the solution can't be to vote the bums out if you don't like the maps they're drawing. The, the whole point of the maps is to make it harder uh, to vote them out. Um, so, you know, the, when, when it came, I think there was a preliminary ruling out of a case uh, in Wisconsin, which uh, basically said that the, the way the plaintiffs had crafted their claim wasn't exactly precise. But when it came to the actual substantive question of can the federal courts police partisan gerrymandering, you had a very clear ideological split on the court. So what was the, what was it, the five to four? 
I think mm. that was the five to four decision in 2019, yeah, right. with Kagan okay. writing for the four so-called liberals in dissent. Okay, well, I'm glad you corrected me on that. Your article though talks about you mentioned Wisconsin. There, apparently, the Republicans in Wisconsin are considering a brazen move to disband the partisan state election commission. And how will they get away with that? I mean, there's a Democratic governor there. Could he veto it? Yeah, he could. Um, you know, this gets to another pillar of the attacks on our democracy, where partisan legislatures are trying to take over power. Uh, from local election officials and, and others um, because basically they didn't go along with the uh, the big lie uh, that, that argued that Trump actually won the election. In Wisconsin, you know, this board was just created a few years ago um, in an attempt uh, arguably to be bipartisan. And now there's arguments that the commissioner should be subjected to prosecution for uh, their rule, you know, the rules they set out for the 2020 election. It's, it's just it's incredible. Um, this is uh, often been now referred to as election subversion, an attempt to subvert the will of the voters by putting into power people who uh, don't have fidelity to democracy. They have fidelity to a particular candidate. Um, now, their argument on the law is that the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures the authority to regulate elections. And so the Wisconsin state legislature could take back the authority uh, to run elections and disband this commission, the state-level election commission, um, based on the authority granted by the U.S. Constitution to regulate the manner of elections. Um, the governor could veto it, um, but you know they may argue that the Constitution says legislature and only legislature. Well, but isn't it pretty clear just to sort of widen out or pull back and look at this picture of, of comprehensive, multi-layered voter suppression underway by the Republicans? I mean, there have been a number of important articles like yours. As, you know, the Washington Post had a piece yesterday on the activities at the election board levels where people are being in, normally independent, neutral people are being intimidated and quitting their jobs and these partisan Republicans are taking their jobs. And in the state of Colorado, the Republicans are, are busy on social media trying to recruit people who are believers in the stop the steal to become election officials. So it's all happening before our eyes. And I'm frankly astounded why the Democrats in the Senate and the House don't have their hair on fire because this is existential. You know, you're not going to win another election. We're going to go become a one-party state just like Putin's, you know, united Russia. So, you know, this is this is something that I spoke with my election law students uh, today in today's class about. Is you know, you had someone like Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger um, stand up to Trump when Trump asked him to find eleven thousand eight hundred and sixty votes. I think it was that you know won more than the margin of of Biden's win in Georgia. He said, "I'll just go find them in a phone call." in, what was it, I guess, December 2020. And Raffensperger basically said no, right? He said uh, that, you know, that would subvert the will of the voters. But what if you have someone who is more uh, loyal to Trump? And, you know, right now you have someone from the right, uh, Representative Jody Heiss, who's, who's running in the primary against Raffensperger for that Georgia Secretary of State position. Uh, similar thing with uh, a local election official in Michigan who the Republican Party has punished for uh, for certifying accurately 
the results of the election in that county. Um, it's a real concern if you have people in these positions of power uh, who have the authority to go, or not authority, but but would try to go find those votes um, uh, to put uh, the the uh, candidate on top. It is an existential crisis for democracy. Well, just in closing then, uh, Joshua D- Douglas, do you think the Supreme Court justices, the Conservatives, the six to three majority of Conservatives, they must read newspapers, they must be aware that this is underway. Are they countenancing it? Because it's pretty brazen, isn't it? You know, I mean, I think that they believe that it's not their role to um, to to step in. You know, they're going to uh, only hear cases that uh, are brought to them. And there's a argument again on this. You know, the legislatures have the authority um, that at least four justices and maybe a fifth with John Roberts in a prior case indicated that he agreed. This is known as the independent state legislature doctrine. And so, you know, they may just say, look, we're going to let the legislatures figure this out. Of course, the legislatures themselves are becoming less and less representative of the representative of the people through gerrymandering. So uh, I've, I'm nervous about holding out hope that the court uh, would step in. But, you know, if we have a situation where you get a, a true subversion of the, the will of the voters and there's a, a, a law, um, a legal hook, then, uh, then you know, we'll see what happens. I think we're in a brave new world is, is the ultimate answer here. Yeah, but do these Supreme Court justices of the conservatives want to be seen as political partisans in robes? I mean, I think they don't want to, but I think they have been. Right, and they're likely to be and, more and, so, and right? They, a lot of them are seen that way. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Joshua Douglas. I appreciate it. All right, thanks so much. And I've been speaking with Joshua Douglas, who's a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and he has an article at CNN, The Attacks on the 2024 Election Are Already Underway. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 